All right. Welcome to Cinema Around the Corner. I'm your co-host, Ben Wager, with Don Gibson. Hey there. And today we're going to take a look at films that were nominated from 1982, but they were filmed in 1981. And we're going to look at a couple of films that ironically both have a strong musical component that uh, Don and I picked. They also period piece movies and they do have, I guess they do have a, a few similarities, uh, but overall very different films. So uh, we're going to open up with Don introducing his film, Pennies from Heaven. Yeah, Pennies from Heaven, uh, as you said, was made in 81, and it stars uh, Steve Martin. It's a, a very interesting film because um, got a, it had a very large budget, 20 plus million. It had a lot of praise from critics, but it essentially bombed. And it's not too complicated. I mean, I remember it really well when it came out, and it was the film that Steve Martin made right after The Jerk. And uh, anyway, so it was a great film, you know, full of all Steve Martin's one-liners and it, it did incredibly well. And a lot of the stuff that Steve Martin done up to that point had done phenomenally well. Uh, his stand-up, um, he had been a frequent guest on Saturday Night Live. And I think he was kind of like the first stand-up comedy superstar, you know, like that first Yeah, that he was, one, as you said, he you was know, a comedy superstar. Stand-up comedy. Yeah. Like, and, like arenas. Uh, he was doing arenas and stuff. He was doing arenas. Yeah. The Wild and Crazy album was done in arenas. And it was, I remember, so I, I got his albums too. He had Comedy's Not Pretty. Uh, and then he had that one. And it was, it wasn't as good because it was in these massive arenas and it kind of changed his comedy. Like it was superstardom, as you said. But it, so anyway, so he went into this and the audience expected, you know, it was uh, musical. There's comic aspects, but it's really a musical drama. And it's very set, dark, very dark. It, there's dark, but it's basically a version of the 30 style comedy. So there's a there's quite a few dance numbers and highly influenced by Busby Berkeley, who was the great uh, choreographer of the 30s. He did films like Gold Diggers of 1933 and 42nd Street. And they're just films are OK. Like when you look at them now, the dance numbers are just unbelievable. They have all these great aerial shots and these incredible geometric patterns of legs, you know, going into the circle, coming out of the circle. The swimmer, the kind of the synchronized swimming stuff. Yeah. And that's where we when we see it now, we're like and that's where synchronized swimming got a lot of their ideas for a choreography, realizing this guy basically handed to him a platter on how to do things. Anyway, so th this film has a lot of really interesting sections in it, uh, ideas, especially the, the musical numbers. You know, the audience, they wanted to see Steve Martin make jokes. And, and I remember <clears throat> very well, you know, I love films in those days. I went to everything all the time. I didn't go because I saw the reviews and said, if you're looking for Steve Martin jokes, don't go to this film because he doesn't make any jokes at all. I thought, well, that's kind of weird. And so I didn't do it. And the same around the same time, you know, Bill Murray, who had just done Groundhog Day and something else, I think. And then he did Razor's Edge, which was a dramatic role. And 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 the audience, and he also did Where the Buffaloes Roam, which was a which was the film about Hunter S. Thompson. I think and, Groundhog Day was like in the late 80s. Oh, sorry, not Groundhog Day. There's a groundhog in it. Caddyshack. What am I thinking of? Yeah. Caddyshack has a groundhog in it. Yeah. Um, thank you for correcting me there. Yeah. And uh, but he was really he was just like Steve Martin. And then he did this dramatic role. And I didn't see that either, because, I mean, who wants to see Bill, Mar Bill, Bill Murray do, you know, straight characters? It's not what he's really good at. So although later on in his career, he, he actually kind of did do well as the straight man. That is true. I guess we're on a slight tangent, but he did eventually do some pretty interesting films that weren't just the slapstick comedy, as did Steve Martin. But um, in the day, this is what they're known for. And so the film 
basically, um, it, it, did, it didn't make its money back. It was well below, uh, it lost money, um, despite a lot of critical praise. But actually, a lot of criti critics didn't understand it either. There was a lot of negative uh, criticism. And, and you know, one person that people always talk about in terms of great critics of the past, Pauline Kale, who wrote quite a bit for the Times and other sources, you know, and she had a very strong voice and, you know, sometimes highly critical. She loved this film. You know, she called it the most emotional movie musical I've ever seen, stylized mythology of the depression. She just went on about how it was just remarkable. And she was basically the only person that just, you know, thought it was an amazing film. A lot of people said there's some good parts to it, but it's actually really inconsistent and we don't understand what's going on. I could see that. I mean, it, to me, there was a lot of like, it had a kind of a schizophrenic kind of vibe to it. You know, the way they, they had it, Fantasia kind of dance numbers and the darkness of the, and the bleakness of the depression settings. It, it did have kind of a manic depressive, like high, low vibe to it. I actually, at the beginning of the film, I felt that way on a certain level. I was like, man, I don't, what this is there. These people are singing, but they're reversing the genders of the, of the, the dubbing of the music because they don't nobody sings live right so it's all the ancient it's all from the, the soundtracks of those 30s movies right and so they've got all these these classic songs from back then and oftentimes they reverse the genders of the people who are who are dubbing them so like men yeah. are singing the chorus girls uh the chorus and of girls voices and and you know and at the beginning you're just like what the hell is going on here <laughs> Because <laughs> it was very, you know, it was very manic in the way that they did all this. And then, and that was, it kind of distracted at the beginning until you kind of got into understanding what they were trying to achieve there. Yeah, well, I'm, it's so, yeah, I didn't mention that. So they do the numbers and then they lip sync. So we never hear Steve Martin singing. And as you say, sometimes it's a gender bender thing. But the interesting thing is the sound quality of the singing is very distinctly different than the sound quality of the rest of the film. It is the sound quality of a 30s musical. So they literally took, you know, Bing Crosby's voice, Fred Astaire and a number of other people, and they used the exact recordings from the 30s musical and they put it into this and the characters lip sync. As you said, it's a little bit, uh, you know, <laughs> it's disappointed and confusing the beginning. I, I, you know, I got to say, like, I've watched a lot of movies lately. I've watched all the Golden Globe nominations and everything coming out. This is, this is much better than most movies I've seen lately because they're so adventurous in what they're trying to do. It's such a, it's such a vision. I mean, the question is whether you're going to like the vision. Personally, I thought the vision was really quite remarkable. And they just stuck through it all the way to the end. As you say, it's a sort of like Steve Martin, you can't help. He's got a very jocular face and he's he's always he's got a big smile but he comes across as a nice guy but boy is he not a nice guy in the end he, he leaves a girl he's married then he gets another girl pregnant and, and he, he's a manipulator he's a he's like he's a, a manipulator he's a, he's a salesman he's what his job in this film is he sells music to music stores like uh, lyric sheets he's and he's not very he's not very successful and he manipulates his wife who's got some money from her parents buy him a record store and, and she, does, she's got a lot of issues too. It's a very unhappy marriage. It's a very unhappy marriage. But I think once again, that's really, and once it also, the, the person that he has the, you know, affair with, uh, she's not, doesn't know what she's doing either. I wouldn't say any character. Well, she had a more, she was a little more pure until she ran into him. Uh, yeah, well, she's definitely portrayed that and, way. Yeah. And, Bernadette you know, Peters. I suppose we should introduce who that actress is and, you know. Yeah, Bernadette Peters. And she, she actually, 
I'm not sure what else she was in, but he definitely acted with her in other films. It was somebody that she was in the jerk. She was in the jerk. You're right. Yeah. And, uh, and they were in a four year relationship to that point. Well, there you go. That's good research, Ben. Thank you. Thank you very much. (laughs) So, uh, yeah. And she's very, she's a very interesting, she's not, I would say definitely not a typical Hollywood look. Um, she's got, as you said, she's got a very innocent, naive, um, you know, the way she presents herself. She actually has kind of a third, she fits well into that thirties period though. She does have that look. She has that classic thirties, Betty Boop kind of. I would say yeah. Betty Boop is good. And she uh, does, she actually does a Betty Boop song in the, in, in one of the scenes. So you're talking, in the, in the beginning, it's just like, okay, you're kind of wondering what's going on here. Steve Martin's not making jokes and they're lip syncing old. But then once you accept these things, it, I find, I, I was kind of fascinated. And then there's a point later in the film, um, Steve Martin and Bernadette Peters, they are watching a Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers film, and then they sing. They oh, enter, so the, the movie's playing on a giant screen. They come on the screen. I'm trying to face the music. And it is just wonderful. So the, the, the scene, Steve Martin has been betraying his, he's left his wife and he's, you know, he's on the lamb and he's, you know, hasn't taken care of Bernadette Peters properly. And so he's got to face the music in his own life. He's got to figure him, you know, he's got to like do the right thing. And the characters in Crosby, uh, uh, Fred, sorry, the Fred Astaire, uh, Ginger Rogers film, um, same thing. They have, we don't know what the story is, but we, we can see that he's really struggling. And so then they do a dance number, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, you know, and the song is Face the Music and a, l- a lot more up, more upbeat because definitely the 30s styles, 30s musicals. Escapist, the escapist, escapist reality. 100%. Even though there might be some shooting or something, but generally the romantic comedies, there's always escapism. Bernard Peepers, uh, Peters and, and Steve Martin get on, you know, the, the, the front of the stage and they dance basically in, in sync with Ginger Rogers and, and Fred Astaire. And it's really, it's really quite magical. I was, I was really quite taken away by that scene. Somebody commented, I, I read a, a review and as I said, over in the beginning, a lot of negative reviews and people are now coming around realizing, wait a minute, maybe this was uh, a, a pretty interesting film. And a guy wrote an interesting uh, blog and he quoted Roger Ebert, who, who has one of his famous things about how to review a film. If there's three great scenes in a film, then, and it's, a, it's well-made, you know, it's a good film and there's three really memorable scenes, that's a film worth recommending. And this guy's argument is like, that's exactly what this film is. It's an interesting film, lots of interesting things you can talk about. And there's three great scenes. One is that face the music. There's also the pennies from heaven number that's done by this sort of homeless guy that's just beautifully choreographed um, with an immense mural behind him. And there's this dramatic thing with all this, you know, fake coins coming down. And it's a beautifully- He was a phenomenal dancer too. Just a huge amount of charisma. That guy was just a natural dancer. I was really taken- that scene really brought me into the movie. You know, that's where the, for me, that was a big turning point was that scene uh, where he steps out of the diner and does that beautiful, beautiful choreographed um, dance to Pennies from Heaven. That to me was, you know, just with the background, the, the, it was just shot so uh, impressively and really brought out a strong emotional connection to that moment. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And it's interesting because it's not, it's just, a, it's, a, it's a solo male number. And normally those aren't, you know, we definitely always want to see beautiful girls, especially in the 30 styles film and generally focused on women and, and especially in the chorus. This is just a guy on his own and it's just beautifully uh, rendered. And it's interesting because Steve Martin is helping this guy out. Um, he just buys him a dinner 
And then he just leaves the diner and does this incredible dance number. And then he comes back to the diner. And then the other scene is Christopher Walken's dance number. Yeah. So yeah. Christopher Walken's is, they said it stars him or co-stars him. He's in this film for maybe 10 minutes at the most. And he just, he's a, he's a, he's a kind of a, he's a guy of a questionable morality and he's trying to corrupt. He's a, a pimp. He's a pimp. He's a bad fellow. He's a he's pimp. And he's trying to, he's corrupting Bernadette Peters and he's, she's in a bar and he's going to, you know, basically pimper her. He does a dance number that, I mean, and I've read it, but Christopher Walken is a dancer. And yeah, he's a natural dancer. He's a natural, he's just, the number he does is just unbelievable. And he ends up in his undershirt and, and underwear in the end of it. But he, he just does this dance number on the bar that is just, and you're like, this, is this a double for Christopher Walken? Because it's so remarkable. Yeah, he's phenomenal. And, you know, and actually he has a much bigger influence on this movie than you can imagine, because I believe he was the coach for Steve Martin on a lot of choreographing a lot of Steve Martin's dances because Steve Martin's not a dancer. But he does a great job. Yeah. I mean, he does a phenomenal job. And, you know, I'm going to tell you something. I think this movie might have been more successful if Walken had taken that main role. I could have seen him being in that role uh, much more realistically than I because Steve Martin, you know, He's got, he had some strengths in this, you know, his, some, his slapstick and the, you know, some of the dancing he, he did, you know, I, I was impressed. He has a certain, he has ability and a style that was, was impressive in the movie, but he, he's not a natural dancer. Got the sense that this was, a, you know, he had to work hard, this uh, ability. And, you know, he was a little heavy sometimes in some of the dance scenes. I felt like he wasn't, he wasn't liked as a true dancer. You would would. Well, you sound like a dance coach, Ben. And like um, well, you know, I mean, and uh, I, I've worn a lot of hats, Don. Um, so <laughs> the uh, and then the other thing I would say is that as a serious actor, he's passable. I wasn't super impressed with his roles. I didn't. I didn't feel like he got to the place he needed to be in some of these scenes. And probably the movie wouldn't have been made if Steve Martin, you know, I know Jack Nicholson was considered for the role. There were some, you know, other, but he was pushing, he had such passion for this because he said that one of the greatest things he'd ever seen was this movie done in, in on the BBC prior. That kind of drove him to get this vehicle made. To be honest with you, I, I, I almost feel like it might've been more successful if Steve Martin had not been in this movie and that they had gotten somebody that had more of a natural fit. Because as you said, I think his superstar comedian persona at that level was a distraction to people with their expectations of what they, they wanted in that movie. And then that became kind of a negative wave across the movie. And I don't think they recovered from it. And so... Personally, uh, the whole time I was thinking, man, I wish Chris, Christopher Walken had been the main character, you know, because he was just so phenomenal in the little bit that he was in. But I would just, I could have seen with his personality and the way his persona is, he had a natural fit for that role. And, he, and so I, to me, it would have been a whole different movie. And that's kind of how I thought about the movie was, ah, Steve's just not doing it for me in this. You know, I think you're right. I agree that I, the only problem is, is would the project have gone ahead with Christopher Walken in the lead? And um, he was, I mean, he was pretty big at that point too. I mean, Deer Hunter, and you know. Yeah, he wasn't headlining. He was this, like Deer Hunter had De Niro, of course. Right. And I don't know, I don't know. That's the question is, would they have gone ahead with the project without Steve Martin? And I think you're right. Steve Martin maybe doing the role as the pimp would have been great. Yeah, I don't think that was, probably that that would have happened. Well, they would have toned yeah. the, they would have toned the, uh, the dance number down probably but uh. yeah you know i just i just didn't feel like it clicked for steve this movie i thought bernadette peters was phenomenal in the movie I thought she she, is. you, she you was... know what would be interesting is to see the film like 
you know, today, uh, you know, a younger person that doesn't know Steve Martin, just to see what they would think not knowing who he was. Because the problem with, you know, when we see it, we, we have an expectation of, of what he is. And well, I mean, he's, I mean, he's also had a career of doing some hokey movies, you know, like a lot of he hokey. had that whole, that whole cheaper by the dozen stuff. And then like, oh, yeah. he's, he had yeah, a, a like a whole nineties fiasco, in my opinion, where oh, he the was 90s doing fiasco. these bad rom-com family movies. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, I agree. Some, uh, well, and the other thing is you can't find an actor, you know, you name it, Meryl Streep or uh, Tom Hanks or all the, whoever you're going to talk about, they all do, pretty cheesy films because they pay the bills and um, that's okay with me. I don't mind. He's done a lot of, as you say, <laughs> questionable films. <laughs> There's a few um, actors that have kept it real, man, but yeah. Well, let's not get into that. That's a good conversation topic. I'd love to, yeah. uh, I'd love to go further on that. One thing as uh, Steve Martin said, he has a great quote. He said, I must say that the people who get the film in general have been wise and intelligent. The people who don't, our ignorant scum. Yeah. And that's good old Steve Martin coming back with a good zinger. So yeah, good tongue in cheek. He does a very funny piece where he when he's like, I was recently voted one of the people's most, you know, 50 most beautiful people in the world. And he, he did a whole thing on that. That was very funny. I, I don't like to be in a room now without the other 49, you know. <laughs> it's just well, if I'm- but the funny thing is, like, honestly, I don't think, I don't know, I, I obviously, I guess they wanted to keep the purity of the project or whatever, but I don't know how it would have been hurt by Steve Martin doing a couple of Steve Martin bits where he's just sort of like a goofy guy. But they, I mean, that's why I was so respectful of this film and what they did, because it's this, as you said, the 30s uh, films were all escapism. And this film looks like escapism, but it's not escape. As you mentioned, the wife. There's this crazy scene about her, you know, him saying, I want you to put lipstick on your nipples. And then it's this, and I'm just like, is this a thing? I don't even know what this is. And then she does, and then she takes her top off, incredibly awkward. And I'm like, what is going on with this thing? And anyway, I've just looked some of these moments that are really, they really had a vision and they stuck to their vision, you know, whether I think it worked, but I think at the time people were just couldn't, couldn't figure it out. I also, you you mentioned Woody Woody Allen accidentally a little, just a little earlier, but I will tell you that there is some influences, you know, Purple Rose of Cairo kind of. Bullets over Broadway. Uh, and then, um, you know, even What's Up Tiger Lily, where they, you know, they took the dub and, and made it silly, you know, and I don't think, maybe Purple Rose of Cairo came out, out after this movie, actually. Yeah, but, yeah, Purple Rose is like 86, I think. Oh, yeah. But uh, so there's definitely, this movie, there's kind of a circular influence, I think, in regards to this movie and, the, and you know, yeah. Woody Allen movies. And, well, the heyday just, of I, cinema being in the 30s. Yeah. yeah and, you know, you, so you, you do have that, uh, that, a lot of connections there. And so, but overall, there were some spectacular moments in this movie, but especially in the, the 30 scenes, it just, they just kept that darkness deeper and deeper into this. Oh, yeah. and, uh, and for me, it was, you know, it was a little bit difficult to get through, even though I, I enjoyed it. And I liked, you know, where they, they kind of, I don't want to spoil it, but the, the last couple of scenes where they, they kind of changed the ending. Oh yeah, that's great. Wait um, a minute, don't, don't we spoil all movies? I thought that's what we did. <laughs> Well, I mean, we do spoil them to a certain level, but, you know, let's not. Let's yeah, not. but I love that, too, because they have a really dark ending and we're like, oh, my God, this is terrible. And he's and Steve Martin is singing Pennies of Heaven. And then they're just like, just magically, they have a different ending. And I was I was like, what a great choice. Anyway, I was, you know, I watched films to a fault too, too much. And uh, this is a film that I had never seen. And I was like, I want to see this film finally. 
And I was, my attention was completely held the entire time. Yeah. Another thing I did want to point out, so Gordon Willis is the, is the deal, the cinematographer and beautiful shots again. And we've mentioned him a couple of times in previous films that we've done. The couple of sets they do are these Edward Hopper sets. They recreate, you oh, know, the, the, the lonely at the cafe one. Yeah, the, that diner, the diner. The diner, you know, and it's been redone with Henry Bogart and Marilyn Rowe, but and so they just recreate it perfectly. And you, you're, when you're watching, you're like, wait a minute, what's going on? And they also do another Edward Hopper of a woman standing at the side, and it's not as famous, but it's a woman standing at the side of the theater looking at the stage. And they recreate that one too. So they recreate two Hopper paintings. And then once again, like, as I said, it's their vision. And they're like, you know, we're gonna do this. And I was constantly being surprised by choices they were making and interested at the beginning, even though there's no Steve Martin gags. Anyway, I think we covered it well. It's a good, if you've never seen the movie, it's, it's an experience, you know, and uh, it definitely a standard flick. Although I heard that this was MGM's last factory picture. Yeah, well, MGM had a lot of uh, financial issues. And yeah. that was, it was right around when the MGM Grand burnt down in Vegas and they actually diverted a lot of money they did a lot of these things to get away from uh, problems with financial issues they had in Hollywood. So yeah. anyway. All right. Well, let's move on to Ragtime, which is the movie I picked. Uh, also a musical, a period piece. And when I say it's a musical, it's not necessarily a pure musical, like incorporating a lot of people singing in the movie, but the music plays a huge role in the movie. I think 43 three minutes of the movie is actually played with music in, in the scenes. So directed by Milos Forman, a very famous director. Um, you know, before that he had done uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and several other movies. Uh, produced by uh, Dino De Laurentiis and the screenplay by Michael Weller and Bulk. Goldman. And it was based on a novel by E.L. Doctorow, a 1975 book that he had written. And there was an amazing ensemble cast in this movie. I mean, it was just extensive, the amount of, of people involved in this movie. And it's a very complicated uh, story. It's a very interwoven uh, book. The, the storylines in the book are very complicated. In fact, they're so complicated that originally uh, Dr. Rowe didn't even want this made as a movie. He wanted it to be a 10-part TV series so that his, you know, his, his entire book could be captured in, in the series. And so he wasn't overly cooperative in making this movie because he didn't believe that this could capture his whole movie and, and if, uh, in his whole book. And it doesn't. It's a very interwoven storyline with a lot of connections and crossovers, even with the way the movie was made, it was two hours, 30 minutes. So it's a very long movie anyway. The major plot line of the movie is, is mostly focused on a family who lives in New Rochelle. They are the kind of the core of the storylines. Many of the different storylines kind of run through their family on some level. The premise is, is that they're, they're a, a wealthy factory owning conservative Christian family there's a husband and then the wife and then the wife's uh, brother is also uh, in the business as well. It's 1906. It's set in 1906. Some side stories that have to do with Harry Houdini, black jazz musician, a Jewish uh, immigrant who is very artistically talented, plot line that deals with a, 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 a famous she's like a, a chorus girl who marries a very wealthy Pittsburgh industrialist who goes crazy and then kills the guy who owns Madison Square Garden and all of these all of these stories are intertwined but mostly this family 
in uh, this wealthy family in New Rochelle are connected to all these different stories on some level. And so, you know, it weaves uh, a lot of historical fiction, but there's a lot of nonfiction in it as well in regards to, you know, the president's campaigning and, um, and, the, and some of the characters are re that were real people in history. But for the most part, uh, it's very well done. I mean, the, the, the relationships within the characters and the development of the characters, I thought was extremely strong. Some of the standouts, uh, Elizabeth McGovern, uh, who plays the chorus girl is very good. Uh, Henry Rollins Jr., uh, I think his name is, Henry Rollins Jr., who plays the, the black jazz musician who eventually becomes kind of a radical revolutionary uh, that um, takes over the J.P. Morgan Library uh, and negotiates to try and get justice for what has been done to him. The family is connected to that story because his, the jazz musician's lover, who he had a baby with, she, they, she abandons her, the baby on their property, and then they take her in with the baby as kind of a Christian charitable thing. And then he becomes part of their lives through this connection with the baby. This is all happening in, in a very short period of time. The, the younger brother that I had mentioned, he ends up being infatuated with the chorus girl um, who eventually realizes that he's mildly insane, but then he becomes connected to the revolutionary and, and builds the bombs that the revolutionary uses. So that you see all these, these interwoven story plots and yes, they can be confusing, but it actually kind of works if you're patient and wait and to understand what's happening in the movie and the way the movie is shot and, and the way that uh, Foreman is such a good director and how he builds these uh, connections and how he Every scene has a, you know, a strong beginning, middle, and end. So it kind of works as its own little piece of the movie. And you see all these connections in the, the transitions between the, the little parts of the storyline. You know, I really, really enjoyed this movie. And I've seen the play, and, and I, I don't think I've read the whole book, but I've read parts of the book. And I will say that it, it works very well. I mean, I enjoyed this. I thought it just immediately settles you into a, a great story that you know you're just going to follow and be interested in. And he just takes it and he measures it out just enough and moves you through the processes of this to make it a very successful uh, experience to watch. And so overall... You know, I would say the individual roles, the actors were quite strong. The direction was good. The, the cinematography was excellent, the way they, sh they shot everything. And it was just really an enjoyable movie to watch. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I agree with, with your assessment. Um, and, and as you mentioned, I think there's many aspects about this film that are very similar to Pennies from Heaven because it's definitely a period piece. We're definitely looking at a, I guess you'd say, a simpler time. So there's, but this film is epic. Like it's, it's, it's only a story, it basically takes place in New York, a little bit in Atlantic City, and as you said, in New Rochelle, but it's this epic story about, you know, systemic racism, about incredible wealth, and there's all these like sort of, and none of the characters are really developed as individual characters, they're more archetypes, like, like, and I, you know, when you read the character names, you know, the, the father in the wealthy house, his name is father. The woman played by Mary Stern Steenberger, her, her character's name is mother. And, uh, and then the brother who's played by Brad Dorf, he was the, and we go back to Cuckoo's Nest of Milos Forman film. He was the guy, Billy, if anyone's seen um, Cuckoo's Nest, he's the guy that could always stuttered the entire film and he felt so terrible for him. And then he stopped stuttering. That's his, his brother. Really beautiful epic quality to the film. It, you definitely feel like you're in a period of time. You're, and as you said, it's, it takes place in 1906. And it 
work slowly up towards uh, World War uh, One before World War One. The way they set it up, opening, as you said, that we see these stairs, the Harry Houdini, the vice president, et cetera, and it's shown with newsreels. So we see the black and white newsreels and we're brought in the real newsreels, we see a couple of real ones, and then they, they show our fictional characters appearing in the newsreels. Then we see all the stories, and then the film ends, once again, going back to newsreel footage of, this was just, you know, we're basically seeing what happened in this era and this time. And when you saw the newsreels, you always had the piano music playing, which Cole House plays, and we hear this essentially ragtime. This, there's obviously variations of that too, playing in the beginning of the film, the end of the film, and then all throughout it, setting that, the uh, the tone or the atmosphere um, throughout the film. Yeah, I, I I thought the music was very strong. In fact, you know, the last song, which was a Randy Newman song, and I think he was nominated for it. Yeah, he was nominated, yeah. And uh, it, it made me sit through the whole credits. I enjoyed the song, and, and it just kind of connected to the rest of the movie, and I just sat there and kind of processed what I just saw and listened to that music and watched the credits roll. And, and interesting enough, a lot of people, a lot of famous people kind of got their entry into into film through this movie. I know that Samuel Jackson was in this movie. John Ratzenberger, who played um, Cliff in, in Cheers, was in this movie. Uh, yeah. Fran Drescher. Andre, Fran Drescher's role is great, too. And when you realize yeah. it's Fran Drescher, Fran and the nanny, and you're like, oh, my God, that's Fran Drescher. And she's yeah. it's shocking. And, then, yeah. and, uh, she, and uh, Mandy Patinkin it, it has a very uh, strong... Uh, presence in this movie even though he's not on screen a lot but he's, he's very he's very good he always plays you know he's a very i think he's a very strong uh, yeah. actor in just about anything he's in but you could see right away that you know he was very impactful in this movie and then of course james cagney his last film um he played plays the police commissioner and this i mean he's not in good health at this point in his career um you know most of the scenes he had to he was in a wheelchair so he wasn't even, he was sitting in most of the Seeing he was having memory problems, but I mean, he still put up a very professional job. They said that uh, he had to go to England to shoot some of his parts because they shot part of sets in England and um, he doesn't fly. So he actually, he, he took a, a cruise ship, ocean liners to uh, back over to England. And then when he was there, even though he wasn't in good health, he, even when they were doing the, um, the, the single shots for the other actors, he would read the lines with them so that, um, that they would get the um, more authentic reactions in, in the shots. And so, I mean, he was a professional all the way to the end. And, uh, you know, he didn't, one of the things that uh, he, he had a strong feeling for is he refused to say the N-word. And so they, he changed that word to buck and he wouldn't say the N-word in, in the movie, which I found, uh, which I thought was very interesting because, um, you know, James Cagney came out of a time where, you know, it, it wasn't, you know, necessarily as uh, impactful as it as it as it later became in regards to you know saying that w word on film. Another interesting demand he had also, which was kind of weird, was he could cancel being in that movie up to three days before they shot his scenes, which I thought was very interesting as well. And it was also his first film in twenty years. He hadn't been in films forever, and he acts in this film, and he never acts again. So it was a very interesting. And his role is, is he really, as you said, he commands the, the scenes you're in, he really commands his presence, even though you, as you say, doesn't move very much. A lot of the scenes are sitting behind a desk. One thing he's really good at, and I think the film does really well, there's this epic thing that's going on all the time, but there's always this sort of sense of humor. And he, like there's a scene where the, the guys are trying to escape the you know black um, people fighting for their rights uh, to be recognized as equals. And they're escaping, they're being followed by like 300 undercover policemen. And then somehow they get away. And we know, we know they're gonna get away, I'm, I'm revealing something. 
but then he's told, and then the guy says, oh yeah, he got away. And he says, where'd they get away? He's like, oh, 34th and Broadway. He's like, that's one block. And there's like, and his, you know, his consternation of how, how- uh, It's authentic um, frustration. Yeah, but it's funny. You're like, yeah, this is, this is funny and it's serious at the same time. And he delivers a couple of really good lines. Yeah, and, and but he's ruthless at the end. He's like, take the shot. Oh yeah. No. So and that was you know that was pretty cold. So but overall, great movie. Um, I hadn't actually seen it before, and I will tell you that it holds up. I think it's a fantastic experience, and uh, it really I thought kind of drops into some really interesting times in history. Nineteen oh six in. in in New York with all these different scenes, the Lower East Side is captured with all the immigrants and the, and, the, and then you see the immense wealth of the urban and, and uh, suburban classes. And then, uh, you know, you start to see some, some other things that are kind of, tw you know, twisted into this with the civil rights. Uh, Booker T. Washington is, is a character in the movie who's introduced to try and bring the revolutionary out of the standoff situation and he can't do it. And he's really disappointed with him. Uh, and so, you know, you see a lot of this, like I said, this woven experiences between fiction and reality, and it's just done very well. And I have to admit, I love these type of movies, these historical reality-based fiction movies. These are my, the books I read are all based off this. And, you know, as a history teacher, it makes sense, right? Overall, I just, just to me, this movie was just so, so much more enjoyable to watch than Pennies from Heaven. Oh, okay. I think they're equally enjoyable. I saw Ragtime when it came out and I really loved it. And I, I still think it's great. And it's interesting too, because both films, I, I would say were fairly crit well, critically uh, a little bit inconsistent, both of them, neither of them made their budget back. Yeah. Um, they yeah. both kind of faded away. And I think, I think they're, I mean, the films that did really well that year, like Raiders and I forget what won the best picture this year. Um, I think these films are, are much more memorable and much more interesting and definitely. Well, you know, Steve Martin turned down Raiders to, to be in this movie. <laughs> that would have been great. Yeah, yeah, that would have been interesting. Huh? Had a whole franchise. <laughs> yeah, and you know the other thing too is you know Ragtime became an immensely successful um, Broadway play. One of the few Broadway musicals I actually enjoyed seeing because I'm not a Broadway musical guy, but yeah. I actually really enjoyed watching that play. It was phenomenally done, and and they had much stronger parts of the book in that play, like the Emma Goldman, the social activists and uh, the Harry Houdini scenes. I mean, they, they've taken, they took it in a different direction of the play. Uh, so it had more of an eclectic sense of the book to it. Uh, yes, overall, great, great story. Uh, enjoyed it. And, you know, like I said, the differences in the movies definitely changed the tone a little bit. So I would say if we were going to move on, it's interesting that we both picked these similar style movies in the, for the 1982 nominations and we're going to look now i guess next time at the 1983 nominations is that right Don? moving on yeah so we'll see you next time on cinema around the corner